I want to start today with a famous story from the early days of the Salvation Army. Uh, wherever and whenever disaster strikes, it seems like the Salvation Army is already there. Especially in our nation, you're likely to find them on the scene offering aid to the hurting, the dying, and to the firefighters and police. The following story may help you to understand them a little bit better. When, when General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was an old man, he was in, invited to address a large convention of Salvation Army workers and the volunteers that served that great organization. And when it was determined that he was unable to attend, he was asked to send a greeting instead. And this is the message that he sent. To the delegates of the Salvation Army Convention, others. And he signed it, General William Booth. Verse 2 of our text this morning says a similar thing. It says, share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. John Abruzzo is alive today because his friends took that verse literally. At 8.45 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, he was working on the 69th floor of the South Tower at the World Trade Center in New York City. That is when the first hijacked plane hit the North Tower. Seeing the flames and debris filling the sky, everyone scrambled to evacuate the building. Everyone, that is, except for John Abruzzo. John Abruzzo was a quadriplegic since, the, since a diving accident when he was 17 years old. There was no way he could make it down 69 flights of stairs by himself. So eight men and one woman stayed behind to help him. Easing his 6'4", 250-pound frame into a special sleigh-like device that weighed 150 pounds by itself, they began to take him to safety. It wasn't an easy trip that morning. After they had descended a few stories, the south tower shuddered above them, and that's when the second plane hit it. Soon the stairwell was filled with hot smoke and panicked workers racing to escape the doomed building. But when they got to the 20th floor, after an hour of pulling the sled, they heard a roar outside. That roar was the sound of the North Tower collapsing. The lights in the stairwell went out, and when they reached the lobby, it looked like a deserted war zone. Broken windows, smoke, debris, doors off the hinges, furniture overturned. No one in sight. And as they exited the building that morning, a fireman urged them to run for their lives. They followed the crowd to a high school three blocks away. Ten minutes after they left the South Tower, it too collapsed. Looking back on his experience, John says he hardly knew what to say. He is alive today, he says, because his friends carried him to safety. If they hadn't, he says he would have been among those that had perished. Sometimes when we're asked by people um, that are new to Redeemer, uh, if, if, if there's a ministry that they can be involved in here at Redeemer, uh, we might plug our own ministries. We might say that student ministry is a great place for them to be. But, but we often don't know what to say at first because we're not really sure what they mean. Are they asking for an official position, like maybe teaching Sunday school or, or being a trustee? Or are they just asking to do something that utilizes their passion and gifts, like taking stuff out of the worship center to the gym after the 11 o'clock service and filling backpacks? 
maybe you have that passion. Some ministries require a certain amount of expertise and commitment. But there is one ministry, there's one ministry that, that any, any one of us can do. We can perform it. It doesn't require any special training. And the one thing it is, 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 is it's called sharing each other's burdens. If we have the heart and we have the time and we have the desire, we can all be a burden bearer for those who are in need. In our text today, the Apostle Paul two, explains two ways that we can bear the burdens of those around us. And as we study this text, keep in mind that these ministries are not reserved only for leaders or pastors or teachers. If you love the Lord and if you're willing to get involved, if you're willing to take the risk, then you too can be a burden bearer for Jesus. In verse 1 of our text today, the Apostle Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Here's the same verse from the message, the message translation by Eugene Peterson. This is what 6.1 says in the message. If someone falls into sin, forgiving, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. I think that's pretty clear. So who are the fallen people and how, how can we help them? This verse, I think, gives us four answers to that question. The first one is that Fallen people are those who are trapped by sin. The word overcome is a reference to someone who is caught in a trap. It describes a believer who has fallen into some temptation that is upon them. A perfect example of this is Peter, who after boasting that he would never desert the Lord, denies him not once, not twice, but three times. It's a picture of a Christ follower who gets caught in the trap of sin and doesn't see a way out. And the question for us is, what will we do when we hear that our brother or sister is crying out for help? Will we walk away or will we go and help them? Second, I think fallen people are those who require the help of spiritual people. The phrase, you who are spiritual in this context describes those who are walking with God, those that are filled with the Holy Spirit, those that are producing the fruit of the Spirit. And since this is not meant to describe a certain class of super, super spiritual saints, it really applies to everyone who loves the Lord and wants to please Him. One writer comments that truly spiritual Christians would never use that term to describe themselves, but the mark of their spirituality is that they are alarmed at what sin has done to a brother or a sister in Christ. And instead of walking on by, they stop to help out. I picture in my mind Christ followers who suddenly notice a friend who is struggling on the road that we call life. They're held trapped by something called sin. This person's face shows that they're in pain. They're bruised and beaten down. They don't know what to do or where to turn they're begging for someone to come and help them. What will you do? Will you walk on by or will you go to help? And if you are truly spiritual, I think the answer is obvious that you go and help your friend, for that's what friends do for one another. 
Third, I think fallen people are those who must be restored gently. The word restore here was used for setting a broken bone or mending a fishing net. If you've ever broken a bone, you know how painful that can be. But you also know that chocolate milk makes it feel better. If, you've, if, you, if you get to that point, you have a broken bone. If the, med- if the medical staff is tough with you, is they're rough with you, with your broken appendage or whatever it is, it might cause your pain to be much worse even as they try to help you. And I think that's why the work of spiritual restoration has to be done gently. It's the idea of doing something uh, quickly, quietly. It's the idea of just having it done with enormous, enormous kindness. When a friend is down and hurt by sin, you don't announce it to the world. You don't try to ruin their reputation over it. No, you go to that person's side and, and you do whatever you can to help them recover. Fourth, fallen people, fallen people are those who must be approached carefully. Here, I think this is a warning that we all need to consider. Paul says that we should be careful in our helping so that we don't fall into the same hole that our friend is in. And I think Satan is, is really tricky this way. He knows that if he can get one Christian trapped in sin, he may soon get another and then another and then another. And in our attempts to help struggling Christians, we must be careful so that we don't start making excuses, offering rationalizations, avoiding confrontation, and letting sympathy replace truth. Before we leave this thought, I want to I share this. I want to note that Paul does not specify the sins involved. And he does not specify the precise pattern that we're to follow. This verse describes a willingness to get involved with others and the attitudes that best promote healing and restoration. See, the precise details and the time involved are going to vary from case to case and from person to person. There isn't just one medication that cures all diseases. It would be wonderful if there was one. But we don't know of one. And I can't imagine how big it would be if that was the truth case. We probably couldn't swallow it. But I think if if there was one medicine that could cure, there's no magic formula that works in every case when we're doing this. We're called to care enough to get involved, guys, and to act in a compassionate, careful way. See, the Lord can lead us if we're willing to do those two things. So our first response to, to, to those who have fallen into sin is to try and restore them. The second response is a bit broader in that it includes restoring the fallen, but goes on to including ministering to those hurting for any reason. And when we see a friend burdened with problems, when we see the cares and pressures of life, we are to drop what we are doing and go help them immediately. Paul says, share each other's burden. The burden of this verse refers to an overwhelming load, an impossibly huge weight that has a person staggering through life. The weight may represent any number of things, guys. I was thinking of what they all could be. Sickness, sudden misfortune, personal loss, financial difficulty, broken dreams, a failed marriage, family problems, career setbacks, or or the death or impending death of a loved one. These are all major, heavy, overwhelming loads. And I find it significant that Paul does not focus on what the burden is. Paul says he, he doesn't care where it comes from. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when we see 
our brother or sister staggering under that heavy load, we're to drop what we're doing and go to help them. We don't judge them. We're trying to help them by doing whatever we can for as long as we can. Now, will this slow us down and keep us from doing whatever we, whatever we want to do in life? The answer to that is it probably will. And, getting, and if getting to the finish line first is our goal in life, that then, then, then we won't bother to bear very many burdens of others. But if helping the hurting becomes part of our vision of Christian discipleship, then for us, bearing burdens won't be a distraction. It's at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that brings us to the crucial principle. In every situation, you do what Jesus would do. 6.2b says, in this way, obey the law of Christ. Now, theologians debate this. this verse, they debate this verse because Paul has said it over and over again that we are not under the law. He says that so many times, meaning keeping the laws of Moses um, in the Old Testament as a way of gaining God's favor. So what, what does he mean by when he says the law of Christ here in verse 2? I think it probably refers to Jesus' call to love God supremely and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as we go through life and, and we see the other failings around us, and as we come upon those who are suffering from various troubles, we need to ask ourselves the question that has become so famous several years back. If I say WWJD, what do you say? That's right. What would Jesus do? And in almost every instant, the answer will not be just keep on walking. Almost every time, the answer will be, if we're asking, what would Jesus do? The answer will be, Jesus would make a difference in this situation. He would be there, he would care, and he would administer the love and grace and the mercy of God. It may help yourself to imagine yourself as the person under that heavy load. What would you wish that a friend would do for you? And if you think about that, then what you do is you go back and you do that for someone else. And when you do unto others, you will be doing the work of Jesus Christ. Soon after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, Gordon and Gail McDonald volunteered uh, to work at Ground Zero, where the, where the World Trade Center once stood. They were part of a large team of Salvation Army workers who were ministering to the men and women who were trudging up into the pit to remove debris and carefully search for human remains. Gordon MacDonald wrote about that experience in a series of articles. He journaled, his, he journaled his findings, and this was a series of articles. In the first one, he talks about the clean uniforms of the people as they went into the pit. And when they came out a few hours later, the workers were covered with a thick layer of dirt and grime. He said the smell of death, the, the smell of death was on them so strong that it took rubbing alcohol to remove it. The work was physically dangerous and took an enormous emotional toll. The Salvation Army workers offered water, encouragement, and a prayer when appropriate. And the first article ends with Gordon MacDonald talking about the heroism of the men and women who go into the pit each day. Then he says to himself, this is where Jesus would most want to be. And I think he's right. I think if we're looking for Jesus, we, we shouldn't really start by going to church on Sunday morning. 
I know the Lord is with us as we worship. He, he told us he's always with us when people come together and worship. But we are, if we are looking for Jesus, I need, think we need to look f- to, I need to look for those who give themselves to hurting people. Because he is always present when his people carry the light of hope into the darkest corners of our dark, dark world, friends. Paul next mentions the danger that we all should consider. When you see your brother or sister suffering, don't be too proud to get involved. In verses 3 and 4, he says, if you think you're too important to help someone out, you are only, you're, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important, he says. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. It is so easy for us in today's world to look down our nose and say, and say things like, they deserve what they got. Or we say, he's so weak, or she can't handle the pressure. One, one, one that I know I've heard a hundred times is, oh, I saw that coming. You hear things like, maybe they'll, think of, maybe they'll listen to me next time. Maybe you'll hear, I don't want to get involved. I'm just glad it's them and not me. We say things like, I know I would never do something stupid like that. And I think how quick we are to condemn or to look the other way when someone needs our help the most. I think Paul puts his finger on this problem. It's called personal pride. If we think we are something special, then we'll find it's easy to contempt, condemn. But if we think that we're, we're nobody apart from the grace of God, then we're, we'll be quick to forgive and ready to help those hurting people. Perhaps we can rephrase it a little bit. I think the reason we find it easy to condemn is because we have an inflated opinion of our own importance. And if we're more conscious of our own sin... I think we'd be more forgiving of the weaknesses and failures of others. Aesop said that every person carries two bags over their shoulder. With one bag hanging on his back, they carry their sins. And with one bag hanging in the front, they carry their neighbor's sins. And the moral of of the story here is, if we were more aware of our own sins, the sins of our neighbor would not bother us as much as they do. So before we can condemn or criticize, we need to take a good look in the mirror, friends. We're not as hot as we think we are, and our hurting friends aren't really as bad as we think they are. Finally, I think there's a test for all of us. Are we doing our part? Verse 5 says we are each responsible for our own conduct. Paul uses two two different Greek words here. The word in verse 2 when he talks about it, refers to an overwhelming burden that we cannot carry by ourselves. The word in verse 5 describes a person's personal conduct or decisions. It's something smaller, something lighter that every person can carry. Our conduct includes the decisions we make on a daily basis to either be self-centered or selfless when it comes to helping others. We can ignore the needs of others, we can, we, can, we can stop and help those who are struggling under emotional or enormous loads. And if today your burden seems light to you, I don't want you to think that God intends you to go skipping and singing like that all the way to heaven. If you're skipping and singing, open up your eyes, look around you, find someone who needs the help that only you can give, and then lend a hand. I think the message of our text can be summarized this way. I can't do everything, but I can do something. 
God never calls us, he never ever calls us to do it all. Superman, although very cool, is only a character in a comic book in a movie. That doesn't excuse us, friends, from doing what we can, when we can. We can't do everything, but there are some things that we can do. The question is, will we do it? One of the most touching pictures to come out of the World Trade Center disaster shows a young fireman. I'm guessing in his early 20s. He's going up the stairs with this determined look on his face. He has determination written all over his face as he's going up the stairs. I was thinking about that and thinking that was probably the last picture his parents ever saw of him. While others were, were, were fleeing to safety, he was going toward the danger because that was his duty. We can't do everything, but we can do something. Todd Beamer had no idea that he had less than three hours to live that day when he boarded United Flight 93 in Newark, New Jersey, bound for San Francisco, California. That's when hijackers took over the plane. He and many of the passengers were herded to the back of the plane while the hijackers took over the cockpit. And when several of the passengers used their cell phones to call family and friends, they learned about the hijacked flights that had already crashed into the World Trade Center. That's when the truth sunk in. This wasn't a normal hijacking where the plane was going to end up in Cuba or Algeria and everyone would be released. These hijackers intended to turn the airplanes that they were stealing into flying weapons that would destroy buildings and, and mo most predicted that, these build that the buildings that they were going for were in Washington, D.C., maybe the Capitol or the White House. It meant that no matter what happened that day, the passengers of United Flight 93 would never get off that plane alive. They knew they were already as good as dead. So what does a person do in a situation like that? For a handful of men, including, including Todd Beamer, the choice was simple. You don't just sit there and go down in flames while the plane crashes into the heart of your nation. If you're going to die, you go down fighting. Todd Beamer was a Christian whose love of God and of his family was obvious to everyone that had known him. Todd was a graduate of Wheaton College. He and Lisa were very active in their church in Plainsboro, New Jersey. And when he couldn't contact his wife, he picked up the phone and called an operator. For nearly 15 minutes, they talked. He described the situation and asked the operator to, to tell his wife and his two sons, David, who was three, and Andrew, who was one, how much he loved them. And then he asked the operator to recite the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23 with him. And when the time drew near to take action, these were his final words. God, help me. Jesus, help me. Are you ready? Let's roll. Then he dropped the phone, and the men moved down the aisle to confront the hijackers. The operator heard some screams, and then the line went dead. Ten minutes later, the plane crashed into a field just east of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Though everyone on board died, the hijackers' dreams of assaulting Washington, D.C. had been foiled. And we may never know the full story of what happened in those last few desperate minutes aboard Flight 93. Later, the New York Times reported that an analysis of the cockpit voice recorder revealed the sounds of a scuffle, 
loud shouts in Arabic and English, and whatever Todd Beamer, Jeremy Glick, and Thomas Burnett did on that day, it worked. Even though they lost their lives, they died as true American heroes. They were ordinary men under incredible pressure who did something extraordinary. Lisa Beamer summed up her husband's actions this way. She said, doing what you know ought to be done without regard to the results, this is the true test of character. And I think there's a message here for all of us. When those men rushed those hijackers that day, knowing they were certain to die one way or another, they were bearing the burden of an entire nation. They had no way of knowing how the struggle would end, but they knew, but they knew what they had to do. I think the same is true for all of us, usually in, in way less dramatic ways. We, we come again and again to moments of decisions where we have to decide whether or not to get personally involved. Many times the outcome will not be certain, and in those moments we must say, God help us, let's roll. And down the aisle we go, ready to do whatever needs to be done, leaving everything else in the capable hands of a loving God. I think this is the message that comes out from our Lord today for everyone who hears this message, and it goes just like this. To my people who are called by my name, others. And it's signed by Jesus himself. Jesus said, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. On a human level, this is exactly what Todd Beamer and other men did when they rushed those hijackers in order to save the nation from an even greater disaster. And, and, and this is what Jesus did as the Son of God in human flesh when he came and died on the cross, taking our place, dying in our stead, paying the price for our sins, taking the death we should have died, and turning it away from God's wrath, setting us free, opening the door of heaven for us. There is no greater love than that. All of us have been deeply touched by the example of those first brave responders who went into the World Trade Center that day, risking their lives to save others. And we know that many of them died as a result. God sent his son to earth to give his life to save us. So my question for you today is this. Do you know him? I mean, do you know this Jesus? Have you ever come to him in simple faith, saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Come into my heart and be my Savior and my Lord. He gave his life for you. He gave his life for me, for all of us. Will you trust him here? Will you trust him now? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, and you will be saved. Trust in him and know, and know you can for certain know that one day you will have a home in heaven because we know that he died to save us. Jesus died as he lived for others. May God help us to follow in those same steps.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please forgive us. Please, please, please forgive us for our uncaring indifference to the hurting people that we see each and every day. Give us eyes to see those who need a touch and just a touch of your healing grace. Lord, make us burden bearers who are not ashamed to help those who struggle under those heavy, heavy loads. And when the call of duty comes, Lord, maybe we be the ones that say, let's roll and leave the results to you. We pray this in your holy, holy name. Amen.